We love you, Lord. That's our prayer. God, help us to put you at the center of it all, Lord. The center of it all. Jesus Christ, we love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray today that, God, hearts are open to receive your word, to come to know you more, Father. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. All right, well, while you're seated and while the band kind of makes their way off, I'm going to stall a little bit and tell you a story. Is that okay? So there was this godly and sweet elderly lady. She was gentle. She wouldn't hurt a fly. And she was laying in her bed one night around 2 a.m. And she heard a noise coming from the living room. Well, she shouldn't have heard a noise coming from the living room because she lived alone and her only pet was a cat in bed next to her. And so she got up and she went into the living room and she crossed the threshold and came face to face with a burglar. Well, without thinking and, a, and in, with authority in her voice, she just yells, Acts 238. Well, almost supernaturally, it, as if in a con, uh, canatonic state, trance-like state, the burglar just stood there frozen, TV in his hand, till the cops came. And when the police officer was escorting him out, he said, why did you just freeze like that? I got to know. Why did you just freeze like that? All she did was yell a Bible verse at you. He said, a Bible verse? She said she had an axe and two thirty-eights. <laughs> we all could use a little bit of laughter. In our life. I normally don't write jokes into my messages, but we could use a laugh and we all could use some joy in our lives. We look around this world and especially in the media and in television and there's so much negativity. There's so many things that can pollute and muddy the joy that God gives us in our lives. And um, yeah, my message today is the secret to a joy-filled life. And guess what? It's actually not even a secret. It's in the pages of the Bible. But I want to give you a context. We're going to talk about the book of Philippians chapter 1 today. And in the book of Philippians chapter 1, it talks a lot about joy and living a joy-filled life. But before we go through any book of the Bible, we want to talk about a couple of things. We want to talk about history, cultural context, background, purpose, and themes so before we dive into the first chapter of Philippians, we're going to do a flyover of these quick things. It's going to be like a brief history lesson for about five minutes. So first, the first five things is the city, the church, context, purpose, and themes of the book of Philippians. The first thing is a profile of the city of Philippi. Philippi was a small Macedonian farming town until around the year 42 BC when an important battle was fought there that led to Augustus becoming the emperor of Rome. In honor of his victory, Augustus made Philippi a Roman colony, which gave them all the rights and privileges of Rome, including Paul being able to appeal to Caesar, including them being able to appeal to Caesar in legal matters. Uh, this became an attractive place for Roman citizens to settle, and it became a ma major settlement for retired military veterans. So that's the profile of the city of Philippi. Now the, the profile of the Philippian church is as follows. The Apostle Paul first visited Philippi around the year 5180. That's about 109 years later after Rome became a Roman colony. On his second missionary journey, way back in Acts chapter 16, and sort of as a prequel to my message today, 
to help you understand the mindset here. When Paul first visited Philippi, he wanted to preach in the synagogue, as often was the thing. You know, when you go to another town, you, you go and you find the, the Jewish synagogue and preach. But Philippi had no synagogue. So what he did is he went down to the riverside and he found uh, some believers in, in God worshiping. And there he, he, he told his message about Jesus. And by the riverside is where Lydia came to know the Lord and her family came to know the Lord. Another time, Paul and Silas, and you know this story well, Paul and Silas were, were, were driving, they drove a demon out of a slave girl and they got thrown into prison. And around about midnight, they were singing songs to God and those prison bars broke open. And, and that guard was about to kill himself because if he lost a prisoner, he would have to take their place. So he was about to kill himself, but Paul and Silas said, no, we're here. We haven't gone anywhere. Don't kill yourself. And they got to preach to that prison guard. And that night, the prison guard took them to his house. They ate at his table, washed his wounds, and his whole family got saved. The prison guard's family got saved. So probably with the Philippian jailer, his family, Lydia, her family, some other folks, Timothy, some other folks, the Philippian church was born on Paul's second missionary journey. And the way Paul describes these events is just with such joy. And we're going to go over those scriptures later. But he describes this like it was just a blessed time in his life. The Philippians also supported Paul early on when some of the other churches were still skeptical. Now, remember, just a little bit before this, Paul had a hand in the stoning of Stephen. So they're like, wait a minute, wait, wait, you mean Saul, right? The one who just stoned Stephen? No, 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 we're not going to support him. Uh, you keep him away from us, but no. At first, maybe they were like that. They were skeptical, but the, not the Philippians. They were his friends, and they were faithful from the beginning, and they stayed faithful to the end. Now, the context of the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians is this. All that happened way back in Acts 16 on Paul's second missionary journey. So fast forward about 10 years later to around 61 AD, and Paul is in prison again, but this time he's under house arrest in Rome. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7, and the setting and the context in which Paul writes his letter is that he's, he's under house arrest in his own rented house, chained to a Roman guard. Now, you'd think that would be enough to shut somebody up, right? But not Paul. So here's the sequence of events leading to the writing of the letter of Philippians. Paul gets sent to prison. Word gets back to the church in Philippi, and they send Epaphroditus to check on Paul while he's in prison. When Epaphroditus gets there, he gives Paul the donation. He tells him about the condition of the church. You know, there's a few issues. Everything's mostly good, but there's a few issues we need to talk about. Um, he tells Paul that the church loves him and that they're concerned for him while he's in prison. Then Paul writes the letter to the Philippians, hands it to Epaphrodites to deliver to the church. And the purpose of his letter is this, to thank them for the donation, to thank them for the generous donation they had just given, to update them on his situation and his mindset, to encourage them and to give them spiritual wisdom. And he uses the letter to address some of the issues that Epaphroditus had just brought to his attention. Now, lastly, here's some themes in Philippians. As we just talked about a minute ago, joy is a prominent theme in the book of Philippians. Either the word joy or rejoice is mentioned 16 times in the book of Philippians. 
So it's joy is definitely a prominent theme in Philippians. Joy in fellowship, joy in living, joy in putting Jesus at the center of your life, and even joy in suffering and adversity. Okay, so all that was just to set the stage for the, the book of Philippians. Now, let's get into the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, the first words the Philippian church would have, would have read in Greek is Paul and Timothy. This was not some spam letter the church was receiving from strangers. This was from their brothers, their friends, Paul and Timothy. The same Paul and Timothy who they had just shared all these experiences with just 10 years before. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of times when you see preachers use Greek words, the reason for that is because there's some words that are translated a lot of different ways in a lot of different versions. And so right here, the word bondservants of Jesus Christ, the New King James, which is what I'm using right now, says bondservants. I believe other, there's some versions that say servants. There's some versions that say slaves. But some use the word bondservants, some use the word slaves. But the connotation of the word servant in our culture could mean someone that just kind of doesn't like their job very much, like a butler or a waiter or someone who works in a service, service profession, but they're really just not that into it. But let me tell you something. This was not the way it was with Paul and Timothy. If we look at the Greek word doulos, we'll see that Paul's declaring something much deeper than just a mere servant. The Greek word doulos means bond slave or slave, one who serves another to the disregard of his own interest. And I really like the way that is, that is put, one who serves another to the disregard of his own interest. A servant can quit. But a bond slave or a slave is, is property of his owner. He's in it for life. And we see through Paul's description of his work, he's in it for life. And he does so with great joy. Paul and Timothy, they were, they were slaves of the king, servants without wages, property of their master, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We read on in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First grace, then peace. Paul often starts his letters this way, grace, then peace. Grace is the traditional Roman greeting, while peace or shalom is the Hebrew greeting. And here he has them back to back, and he, as he often does, have them back to back. Why? I don't believe, now here's where I know, I don't believe that anything Paul does or that he writes down in his letters was idle or pointless because he was being led by the Holy Spirit. Every thought he had, every purpose was because he was being led by the Holy Spirit. So it's grace first, then peace. Now, if there was one word to sum up the entire gospel, I, I believe it would be that word grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was God's grace. He didn't have to, but he did. That was his grace and when you experience his grace, you experience his peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are only possible through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you knew that, if you know, if you don't know that blessed assurance that comes 
comes from knowing the Lord. How can you truly experience peace? If you don't know his grace, you won't have the peace of knowing that you're going to be with him in the next life. Now, to quote Charles Spurgeon on this very issue, grace first, for that is the fountain. Then comes peace, for that is the fitting stream to flow from the fountain of grace. Now, if grace is a fountain and peace is a river, I feel like joy is like a cool, refreshing stream that you just lay back in and you swim in and you enjoy. But God, just like God gives us water here on earth, but then the waste, the junk, the negativity, the trash of this world can pollute that water. Well, we can let the junk and the trash of the world, the negativity of the world, pollute the joy that God's given us as well. I don't mean to be vulgar. And it's not my intention, and I, I won't use super descriptive words here, but I'm going to tell you a story. I, I love to go to Lake Murray and just swim on the banks of Lake Murray, and I love to just lay back and let my ears just go right under the water where I can't really hear and look up at the sky and the clouds and swim backwards. I love that. That's one of my favorite things. That brings me joy and peace. But this one day I was at Lake Murray, and again, not to be vulgar, but I was swimming I was enjoying it. I was at peace. And I looked over to my left and this little thing that, that was about the size of a Snickers bar and about the color floated by my head. And you know what? That day I realized sometimes that, na- that lake can get nasty. Sometimes it can get polluted. And I was out that day, Jack. <laughs> I swam in it again, but I was out that day. The same way we pollute our fresh water that God gives us, we can pollute the joy that God gives us with the junk of the world. Joy is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's a gift from God. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But we can choose to let things pollute that joy. All the negativity in the world, all the junk out there, can pollute the clean water of joy that God gives us. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be vulnerable here for a moment, if that's all right. My wife's smiling. She's like, what's he going to say? Negativity destroys the wonder in life. And because of some things that I experienced when I was a child, some, some disappointments, sometimes I can see the world in, in the negative. But when I was a kid, I also had that wonder in life where, where the world's just so big. And I don't ever want to do anything to take that away from my children or ruin the wonder in their, in their life. So as they experience things, I try very hard not to say, anything negative about that situation. I try to be, you know, yeah, that's awesome. Everything's great. I don't want to let my 40 something been there, done that, bought the t-shirt mindset, deprive them of the wonder I had when I was their age. If you look up the word enjoy in the dictionary, it's a verb. Enjoy, to enjoy something is a verb. And that means whether you enjoy something or you don't enjoy the moments of your life that you're given, that's up to you. The original Latin meaning of the word joy in joy was rejoice or be glad. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Adi, este es el día, que es el Señor. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's, Let's enjoy the moments we're given and let's rejoice and choose to rejoice in the life we're given because it is a gift. Now we go on down to verse three. Verse three, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always and every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that, that word fellowship and the phrase fellowship in the gospel, 
It's interesting because it's one of those words that's translated some different ways in different versions of the Bible. Whether it's King James, New King James, NIV, New American Standard, it's translated some different ways. Some, some words say, some versions say participation in the gospel. Some say partnership. Some say, um, yeah, partnership, participation, fellowship. But the Greek word that's used for that is quanonia. And what that means is an association or close relationship or an intimate spiritual communion. And you've probably all heard that word used before, quanonia. Well, that's what that means, a close relationship or a spiritual, intimate spiritual communion. And I kind of think of that word sometimes, now some of you may disagree with this, but I kind of think of that word sometimes that it's kind of become a churchy word, a little bit of a church, churchy word, like, hey, brother, I sure do enjoy your fellowship. But you know what? That word didn't always used to be churchy like that. And I guess it makes sense because we do use it in the church, but it used to have a little more potency to it. And I kind of think of it like the fellowship, it's just in our day, as words sometimes do, the word fellowship has kind of lost some of its original intended meaning. It's sort of become a churchy type word, but it didn't used to be like that. I think about Gandalf, Aragon, Legolas, Gimli, Frodo, uh, and the other hobbits united for one purpose, to destroy the ring of power. They began their journey as strangers, but by the time they ended that journey, how many of you know they had forged a bond that all the darkness in Mordor could not stand against. This wasn't some impersonal acquaintanceships. It wasn't, it was a close relationship. It was an intimate spiritual communion. So when you think of it that way, and this is why I tell you that story today, because when you think of the word that way, then that word fellowship kind of matches the word quantania a little bit better. You understand now? It, the word fellowship kind of does match and match. It's not like they're just talking about a fellowship lunch. They're talking about a close spiritual relationship. Now, in context, the way this is being used is to acknowledge a, mon a monetary gift of support that the Philippians church had sent to Paul. Fellowship in the gospel refers to their gift of support, which made them participants in his work but also to their physical participation in the gospel. Paul thinks back with joy on his time with the Philippian church. He looks on this church and this group of friends with gladness and love. And every time he, he prayed for them, it was with great joy. He thought about their love and their prayers and their support time and again. And he thought about them with great joy. Going back to that movie, Fellowship of the Ring, or the last one, Return of the King. If you remember, it had about 10 different endings. You thought it was over, but here's another ending. But the joy, the joy that was in their fellowship, that's how Paul would have thought about the Philippians. They were passionate about the gospel like he was, and they were enthusiastic about helping him spread it. If he preached, they were there. If he held special meetings, they were there. If support was needed, they were ready to give. The Philippian church loved Paul, and Paul loved them. There was joy in their fellowship. The Philippian church is a group of believers that were consistent in the fellowship, in the participation, in the partnership, and the quantania of the gospel. There, we'll just cover them all. In the quantania of the gospel since the beginning. And it's amazing how the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring a fellowship of believers from persevering together, from persevering trials and suffering to laughing to facing your fears. 
to just enjoying life together. There's something about Jesus and the work of the ministry and the work of the gospel that brings people together. And there's joy in that fellowship. And that's way more important than the fellowship of the ring. That's the fellowship of the gospel. And, and all the powers of hell can't stand against that because our champion, Jesus, has already won. How many of you know that? All right, we go on down to verse 6. We go on down to verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's confidence was that this work in their heart was a divine work. Paul was confident that the work in the Philippian church had start, the work in the Philippian church had been started by the Lord and that the Lord would carry it to completion. How many of you know God, God finishes things that he started? And in the year 110 AD, the church in Philippi received a letter from the church father, Polycarp, in which he wrote, the secure root of your faith being proclaimed from ancient times still continues to bear fruit of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was about 50 years later, which really isn't that long. There might have been some people from that church still alive, but definitely their kids, grandkids. But they were still, they were still alive and they were still thriving and they were still, their legacy still continued 50 years later. Now, sometime around the beginning of the Dark Ages, when Rome was a dying old man and he was being attacked by barbarians and invaders, bad things started happening and bad things started happening to the city of Philippi, like invaders ransacking the city. There was a severe earthquake. There were things happening that a city just seldom recovers from. And because of these things, the city of Philippi was abandoned. And today the city of Philippi lies in ruins, along with the physical locations and meeting places where the Philippian church would have met. That riverside where Paul met Lydia probably is unrecognizable today. It's probably not even still a river there. Who knows? But you know what? God is still using that church today. We're talking about them today, 2,000 years later. Their example, their testimony, their legacy to minister to people all over the world. He's still using the Philippian church to do a work through their testimony here in the Word of God. Even though they've all long since gone, their legacy, the legacy of a church and of a... That's the legacy of a church who puts Jesus Christ at the center of their lives. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. All right. Here's where it gets a little weird. You ready? How many of you have been to Antarctica? I don't see if you have. I want to go to lunch with you after because you probably have some pretty cool stories. Um, but most likely, no, you haven't been to Antarctica because it's very difficult to get to Antarctica. No one, exactly. And neither have I, because to go to Antarctica, you either have to be a scientist or working on a scientific expedition, like a cook or fireman, something needed like that. It's illegal for regular people to go to Antarctica unless you have permission. There are some cruises that will take you to the shoreline, but that's with permission. And, and if, even if you could come and go freely... To Antarctica, you probably wouldn't want to because it gets down below 130 degrees and nothing will grow. It's just not a good place to live. And a lot of people don't know this, but there are actually a small population of people who live on Antarctica. They're called expediters. 
as in people on scientific expeditions. And this is pretty wild. Noah, you can throw that first picture up, please, sir. There's actually eight churches in Antarctica. This is one of them. It's called Our Lady of the Snows. And I, look, I got four kids. I'm entitled to a dad joke or two. That looks like a pretty cool church, doesn't it? Okay. There's another church called the, it's a non-denominational church called the Chapel of the Snows. It can seat up the 30, uh, 63 people per service. It's a real church. They have, you can flip it, no, it ha, they have preaching, they lead worship. I know you can't see that in here, but there's a guitar, an acoustic guitar to the right and a keyboard to the left. Somebody leads worship, they preach and everything. And you're probably by, by now asking, why in the world is he talking about Antarctica? Well, here's why. I'm actually, if you want to know the truth, I'm not talking about Antarctica. I'm talking about legacy. I'm talking about the legacy of a church and of a man who puts Jesus Christ at the center of life. Because this is what I'm talking about right here, what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but Antarctica seems like the ends of the earth, don't it? Now, they probably thought when Jesus said this, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. They were talking, maybe he was maybe talking about Spain. Oh, you'll go into Spain. Maybe you'll go into India. Maybe the few places in Asia we know about. And then you'll preach the gospel, plant a few churches there. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, you go into the uninhabitable lands of Antarctica. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years after Paul's life and death, his message reaches way past Spain all the way down to the ends of the earth, even into the uninhabitable land of Antarctica. And my point is this, that Paul's messages, the, the, the message of the Philippian church, their example, their testimony, their legacy, it's in the Bible. It's written in the Bible. And while, while it reaches everywhere, it reaches to the ends of the earth. The Philippian church remained faithful until the end, and Paul put Jesus at the center of it all. And look what God did through them. People still talk about them 2,000 years later, and their message has gone to the ends of the earth because, because why? He who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. What a legacy. I know that was a mouthful, but I really, really wanted to say that because that church is just awesome. Um, anyway. Nah, just, it's, it's amazing what God can do to people who put him at the center. We read on in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of all you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. The Philippians continue to support Paul while he's in chains, and he longs to be with them with the affection that God has put in his heart for them. They were not ashamed of the gospel, and they were not ashamed of Paul's chains. When he was in the Philippian prison, the jailer washed his wounds and sat him to eat at his own table. When Paul was in chains in Rome, they didn't leave him penniless. They sent him this donation. They supported his needs, and Paul felt confident in a people who could love like this. He felt joy when he thought of them. We go on down to verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness 
which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, that your love may abound in more in knowledge and discernment and approve those things which are excellent and be sincere. Paul's prayer for them was very specific. He wanted their love to abound still more in knowledge and all discernment. No phoniness, Philippian church. Be sincere. Paul isn't telling them here to let their love blind them to truth and righteousness. He's not telling them to overlook sin or compromise holiness. That's a false interpretation of love. And frankly, it's a gospel that the world preaches, not the Bible. True love looks out for the best interest of others. And it learns to spot the phony and the false. Paul prays, prays for them to continue growing in the Lord and his love guided by knowledge and discernment. Well, let's read down in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul's situation gave him the opportunity to to preach to the prison, prison guards, which when he preached to those prison guards, then they made their rounds into Caesar's court because then they would go and take Paul's message and the things that were happening to Paul and they would go spread that message into Caesar's courts. And so Paul's message made the rounds even into Caesar's courts. Verse 14, and most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now Paul's absence also gave men who would otherwise have been silent the courage and boldness to stand up and preach the gospel. Do you know what happens when a tall, mighty oak tree that's been there for a long time gets cut down? Several smaller oak trees begin to grow up where they wouldn't have otherwise done so. And what Paul is doing here in this scripture is he is actually saying, look, all these things are happening. All these negative, bad things are happening to me. But you know what? He's rejoicing because the gospel is moving forward. The gospel of Jesus Jesus Christ is moving forward. Paul coming to Rome ended up helping him in the furtherance of the gospel because he now had connections that he wouldn't have otherwise had, including access to Caesar's courts. He was given opportunities to minister the gospel that he wouldn't have otherwise had. As we read later in Philippians 4.22, he says, all God's people here send greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So it may not have just been the guards that he was winning, but others in Caesar's household, which would what, be what this verse seems to imply here. Some indeed preach Christ, we read in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, in pretense, or in truth, Christ is preached, and I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. And again, that's what he's saying here, that that all these things are happening, but Christ is still being preached. And Paul's addressing a specific issue here involving specific people. See, Paul was a strong leader and he was being used by God. And as such, he had friends, but he had enemies too. You know, there were those who were jealous of what Paul was, was doing. It's like, well, why can't I be doing that? You know, 
There were those who were jealous of what God was doing through Paul and what God was, that God was using him in a mighty way. And some of these people were going out and trying to preach Christ, but they were doing so out of envy and even rivalry against Paul. But Paul still rejoiced because Christ was being preached. See, because this is what the other guys didn't know. They were fighting against Team Paul, but the thing is, is Paul wasn't even on Team Paul. He was on Team Jesus. And you can't fight against Team Jesus, or you can, but you're going to lose. Okay? So Paul rejoiced. And what he's saying here in this, this, this passage is that it, while it is much desired that when you preach, you do so with the right heart, of course. You know, you want your ministers to have a right heart and be right with God. But hey, if it's not, look, man, the gospel's being preached. A minister's heart should definitely be right, but Paul is rejoicing in the fact that even though these men are preaching with wrong motives, Christ is still being preached. And look how far the gospel went. I, I did this evangelism training thing one time, you know, and take a sip of water. In, in the, it was really a great training, but in the training, they kept on talking about Simon the sorcerer. You better be careful, you know, that you're preaching with the right motives or you're going to end up like Simon the sorcerer. Man, I had heard so much about Simon the sorcerer through that thing that when it was over, I really didn't participate in that particular program very much anymore. But listen, if you're feeling called, now I guess this could be application. If you're feeling called to tell someone about Jesus and you're questioning your motives, you're asking yourself, Lord, do I have the right motives to tell this person about Jesus or to preach? Just go ahead and tell them. Just go ahead and tell them because if you're questioning your heart at this point, you're probably okay. I don't think you're going to be like Simon the sorcerer. Okay, to live is Christ. We read down in verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectations and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether in life or in death. I know, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is referring to his release from this particular prison, this particular incarceration. And we do know, as we read on in the book of Philippians, that, or we do know, that, that Paul is released from this particular incarceration. But we know later, later on, he's going to be incarcerated again. And that time it's not going to turn out for his deliverance. It's, he's going to be beheaded by Nero Caesar. He was confident that he was going to be set free this particular time, though. And he was joyful that, and here's the thing, here's the key, not in spite of his prison, imprisonment, but because of his imprisonment, that Christ is being preached. Because he was removed from the situation and locked up, he was able to talk to these guards. These, these other guys over here that were, you know, maybe kind of quiet and shy were able to come up and start preaching Jesus. Even these jokers who were like just preaching Jesus out of envy and strife, they were, they were still preaching Jesus. The gospel was still moving forward. And in that, Paul rejoiced. To live is Christ, to die is gain. For Paul to live was to know Jesus more, to imitate Jesus more. I skipped way down. Okay, do, do you want to know what the secret to a joy-filled life is? Seriously, it's not hard, and you can do it right now. You can do it today. The secret to a joy-filled life 
is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to have Jesus Christ at the center of your life like Paul did here. Because when you do, then, your, then his will, your will is aligned with his will. For me, let's read in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh, which is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. To live as Christ, to die as gain. For Paul, to live was to know Jesus more, to imitate Jesus more, to, to preach Jesus more, to enjoy Jesus more. To die meant no more shipwrecks, no more imprisonment, no more being beaten with rods, no more cruel Nero Caesar, but to be face to face with his Lord. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And what Paul's saying here, Paul wasn't suicidal. That's not what this is about. That's not what this passage is about at all. By this time, Paul was an old man. His body was beaten and broken. Paul knew that the outcome of his situation could possibly take a turn for the worse. Or maybe if not this time, I mean, death was always a possibility for Paul because of the danger and the peril, the shipwrecks, the snakes, the Romans. The possibility of death was always a reality in Paul's life. But Paul's courageous mindset was to live as Christ, to die as gain. Paul longed to be with God because he longed to see his Savior face to face. But he also knew the churches needed him. And, and he knew there was still more work to do. Whatever the case, he was determined that while he lived, he would live in Christ. To live as Christ to die is gain. For Paul, death was a very real possibility. A guard could have walked in at any moment and said, hey, Paul, we're down a gladiator today, man. Come on, here's a stick. I think they're fighting lions today. It, it was a possibility that Paul lived with. Every day he was incarcerated. Now, now this song that we sing today, that we've sang several times over the last few weeks, would not be written for two millennia, but we see Paul living out this verse. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that was his attitude. Whatever my lot, whether shipwreck, whether, whether facing Nero, whether being beaten, hey, if I do have to face a lion, whatever my lot, I will do so for you, Lord. And if I die, it's gain because then I'll get to see you face to face. And we know Paul would be released this time, but later on down the road, a few years later, he would be beheaded for the sake of the gospel. He would die for his faith. And to him, guess what? That was gain. No more suffering, no more hardship, no more pain, only Jesus. He would see his Lord face to face and live with him for all eternity. Let's go on down to verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together 
for the faith of Jesus Christ. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Stand fast in one spirit and one mind. Avoid the backbiting, the gossiping, the stirring up trouble, the fighting, the complaining. We're to be the antidote the world needs, not the poison. We're to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel and stand fast in one spirit. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, the Greek word used here for striving together is a word called synathleo. Now, that, now, the word sin means with or together, and athleo means to be an athlete, to contend in the games. And you know what the games were back then. But that word, synathleo, it was a blood, sweat, and tears word that brought about the image of hard fighting. And when you put these two words together, synathleo, the image it brings to mind is, is that of Roman gladiators battling side by side. They don't know whether they're going to live or die from one battle to the next, but they're striving together with one mind. The struggles that this early Christian church faced were real. And Paul was encouraging them here, hey, look, we're going to face adversities. We're going to suffer persecution. We might even face death, but keep your focus on Jesus. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Put him at the center and run towards him and strive for the finish line with courage and do so side by side with one mind. Let's read the last passage here. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you it's a proof of salvation and that from God for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. The fact that the Philippian church was able to endure slander and persecution is a testament to their salvation, but their enemy saw that as a sign of perdition. And look, this letter to the Philippians, this first chapter, you know, we talked about Epaphroditus came and, and, and Paul gave him kind of a, he wanted to give them an update of his mindset. Look, you know, yeah, there's some terrible things happening. But it's all good because Jesus Christ is still being preached. And I'm okay because to live is Christ, to die is gain. So what is, what is the secret to a joyful life? There is joy in fellowship. There is joy in living. There's joy when we put Jesus at the center of our lives. There's, there's even joy in suffering and adversity for the sake of Jesus. Joy is knowing the grace and peace of the Father. Joy is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Joy is letting, not letting the junk of the world pollute your joy. Joy is putting Jesus at the center of it all. And that's the secret to a joy-filled life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for what you did for us on the cross, Lord. There was a gap that we never could cross. We never could have crossed that gap, Lord. And you bridged it with your work on the cross, God. We thank you, Father, that we can turn our eyes on Jesus. We can put you at the center of all. We can live our lives. And God, when we do so, we can enjoy you, Lord. We can enjoy the Christian life. We can enjoy our faith. We can enjoy fellowship with each other. We praise you, God. 
And we thank you, Lord. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you that you made a way. We're going to have the prayer team go ahead and come up. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, the strong son of God, amen.